Hello and welcome to this holiday installment of AZ Law. I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Wyke. I'm a Phoenix attorney as well. We explore Arizona's legal and judicial systems in this new program. AZ Law came about to provide Arizona legal news for Sun Sounds of Arizona, the nonprofit reading service for people with disabilities, which make it difficult for them to read or hold printed material. It's broadcast the third Saturday of each month at 11 a.m., and other installments are available on demand. Our Arizona's Law.org website is independent of Sun Sounds, but its prime focus is to support Sun Sounds which is, by the way, a service of Rio Salado Community College, along with KJAZ and KBAQ radio stations. Our website has links to those stations, including Sun Sounds, and information on how you can become a member of them. We urge you to do so now. Go to arizonaslaw.org and click on the links. We have several articles that deal with death penalty and murder cases and a couple of articles that deal with election law cases as well, as well as some other things. So let's get right to the news. We will start with this article from Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services. This was published on Thursday. Arizona asks U.S. Supreme Court to overrule double jeopardy finding in murder case. Arizona's attorney general wants the U.S. Supreme Court to rule prosecutors are entitled to multiple attempts to convict someone of first-degree murder, even after a jury effectively finds the charge has no legal merit. The case involves a defendant named Philip J. Martin. The first jury that heard first-degree murder charges against him could not agree. Instead, the jury found him guilty of second-degree murder, resulting in a 16-year prison term. That conviction was overturned because the trial judge refused a request by Martin's attorney to tell the jury about the right to use force in prevention of a crime. That went directly to Martin's defense that he shot his neighbor, who was on Martin's Golden Valley property because he feared for his own safety. At a new, at a new trial, prosecutors once again brought up the first-degree murder allegation, this time with jurors agreeing and Martin being sentenced to life behind bars. But in August, the Arizona Supreme Court tossed that conviction, ruling the second trial amounted to double jeopardy, with Martin put on trial twice for the same offense. That paved the way for a third trial and only on the second-degree murder charge. Now, Attorney General Mark Burnovich wants the U.S. Supreme Court to rule that the Arizona justices were wrong. Burnovich says the law makes it clear that when there is a hung jury, prosecutors are free to retry a case on the same charges. But Arizona Justice Clint Bollock, who wrote the decision for the state Supreme Court, said this isn't that kind of case. He said jurors did, in fact, reach a verdict. It just wasn't the one prosecutors wanted. The general rule is that the prosecution is entitled to only one complete opportunity to prove the case, Bollock wrote. There's no question but that Martin killed neighbor Stephen Jeffrey Schwartz with a single shotgun blast as Schwartz was walking toward Martin's home. According to court records, Martin admitted to police at the scene and again at trial that he shot Schwartz because he had ignored Martin's command to get off his property. Martin said he believed that the victim was armed and was going to harm him. Jurors in the 2013 Mojave County trial were given a verdict form with three options from which they could select for the first-degree murder charge, guilty, not guilty, or unable to agree. The second part of the form contained two options for second-degree murder, guilty or not guilty. It advised the jury to complete that second section only if it found Martin not guilty of first-degree murder or was unable to agree on that charge. After about two hours, jurors said they could not agree on the first charge, but did conclude that Martin was guilty of second-degree murder. 
In legal briefs, Brnovich has told the U.S. Supreme Court that there is no need for a third trial and that the results of the second trial and the guilty verdict on first-degree murder should stand. He said the Arizona justices misinterpreted the law when they voided the results of the second trial. Brnovich specifically argued that Martin knew there was a risk that he could be retried on first-degree murder when he successfully appealed the second-degree murder conviction. Arizona Justice Bollock rejected claims by prosecutors that Martin's successful decision to appeal his conviction for second-degree murder, the one that was overturned, somehow allows them at a second trial to try again for that first-degree murder charge. The U.S. justices have not yet set a date to decide whether to allow Brnovich to pursue his appeal. And that was from Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services. Arizona asks U.S. Supreme Court to overrule double jeopardy finding in murder case. Our next case, uh, our next article, rather, is one that we wrote on ArizonasLaw.org, part of our AZ Law program. Ninth Circuit stands by earlier decision giving Arizona death row inmate a new sentencing. Defense attorney messed up. Here's the article. An inmate on Arizona's death row should receive a new sentencing hearing because his defense counsel did not properly present possible mitigating factors. That was the decision earlier this year by a Ninth Circuit panel, and the full Ninth Circuit bench today, and this was on Wednesday, declined to reconsider the opinion. George Kayer filed a habeas corpus petition with the federal courts after the Arizona Supreme Court had reviewed and upheld his death sentence. The district court denied Kayer's petition, but a split appeals panel reversed it. Arizona asked the full Ninth Circuit Court to hear the case, but the request for en banc only garnered 12 votes, which was short of the necessary majority. Kayer killed his friend, Delbert Haas, in the desert in order to rob him. His girlfriend turned him into security at a Las Vegas hotel several days later. His trial attorneys did minimal and last-minute work developing Kayer's mental illness history. The trial judge did not believe that that had prejudiced the defendant in the sentencing phase, but the Ninth Circuit found that that was, quote-unquote, objectively unreasonable. And they also wrote, counsel's failure to prepare for the penalty phase hearing was egregious, and the mitigation evidence presented at the hearing was pathetically inadequate. We also held that the node prejudice decision by the state PCR judge was an objectively unreasonable decision within the meaning of AEDPA, and that's the federal law that uh, enhanced uh, death penalty or changed death penalty uh, sentencing processes for around the country. No word yet on whether the attorney general's office will appeal the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court or will move forward with the resentencing instead. The headline on that was, Ninth Circuit stands by earlier decision giving Arizona death row inmate a new sentencing. Defense attorney messed up and, according to the court, was pathetically inadequate. Our final, uh, let's see, yeah, it is our final murder-related case, is oral argument on Arizona death penalty case before the U.S. Supreme Court. Arizona's Solicitor General faced off with a former U.S. Solicitor General in front of the U.S. Supreme Court last week on an Arizona death penalty case which could affect a number of other inmates currently on death row. James McKinney is attempting to get a new sentencing, one that would take into greater account PTSD from abuse that he had suffered as a child. Neil Katyal, arguing on his behalf, also suggested that the sentencing needs to go back to the trial court and a jury. 
After the argument, Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich noted that McKinney was convicted of brutally murdering two innocent people nearly 30 years ago and that this is another attempt by a convicted killer to delay accepting responsibility for his heinous crimes. We must remember the victims and their families. Justice delayed is justice denied. That's a quote from Mark Burnovich. Arizona Solicitor General O.H. Skinner's argument in front of the justices could not be as emotional as that, however. He attempted to convince the court that the sentencing does not have to go back to the trial court and countering McKinney's position that vacating the death sentence would somehow undo the conviction for the murders. The Arizona Republic USA Today provided a very good article on the oral arguments, and this and there's an article from SCOTUS blog's Amy Howe that has further detail. We would like to add the transcript from today's oral arguments, and we did, and actually now on Arizona'sLaw.org, we have the audio of the oral argument if you wanted to go and listen to that at arizonaslaw.org. As always, it is also interesting to try to interpret how the justices are leaning in the case, especially by noting which justices questioned which attorneys, etc. Without engaging in prognostications, we'll simply note how active each of the justices was at the oral argument. Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Sonia Sotomayor were the most active, interjecting approximately 17 and 15 times respectively. None of the other conservative justices reached double digits, only Brett Kavanaugh, while Breyer, Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan both spoke up more. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg participated three times while, as is customary, Justice Clarence Thomas does not appear in the Arizona oral argument transcript. And that was from December 11th, oral arguments on Arizona death penalty case before the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, let's move aside from the criminal uh, cases that were in the news this past week, and let's move to this one that was on Arizona'sLaw.org that we reported. Arizona attacks U.S. Solicitor General's dissing of tax case against California simply ducks what it cannot defend. Here's the article, and this was from Thursday. Arizona quickly answered the U.S. Solicitor General's brief opposing the state's lawsuit against California. Arizona is accusing its neighbor of stealing some $10.5 million from Arizona and its LLCs each year. The response was filed on Thursday, just 10 days after the Solicitor General told the U.S. Supreme Court that it should not accept Arizona's case. AZ Law wrote then that it is very unusual for the Supreme Court justices to ask for an opinion from the Solicitor General and then to not follow it. But Arizona claps back in its 12-and-a-half-page brief saying that the SG, the Solicitor General, is simply ducking what it cannot defend in California's actions and Arizona's right to pursue a remedy in the highest court. The U.S. Supreme Court is not required to accept Arizona's case. As an example of this, Arizona's response notes that the Solicitor General correctly observes that the model for the Supreme Court accepting this type of case between two different states is if the alleged unconstitutional behavior is akin to an act that would cause a war between nations. And they use the Latin casus belli. But this, or cases belli. But despite the acknowledged centrality of this standard, the Solicitor General brief notably refuses to offer any analysis under it, and that standard makes this action a model case for accepting jurisdiction. That's a quote from Arizona's response, and here's another quote from it. Arizona specifically argued that the federal government would never tolerate equivalent conduct by other nations, something California does not meaningfully dispute. 
the Solicitor General brief notably does not dispute this point either. And for good reason. If China or Venezuela imposed an illegal head tax on all U.S. citizens of Chinese or Venezuelan descent and then enforced that tax by coercing U.S. banks into transferring the U.S.-based deposits to those countries, the United States would hardly stand idly by. Instead, it quite properly would regard such conduct as a casus belli precipitating an international incident. It is currently unclear when the Supreme Court will reach a decision on whether or not to accept Arizona's case against California. And the headline on that was Arizona attacks U.S. Solicitor General's dissing of tax case against California, and it says it simply ducks what it cannot defend. Well, let's move on. This is an interesting article from ArizonaElectionLaw.com, and uh, which is written by a an election law attorney, Eric Spencer. He was the Arizona state election director, and now he is covering some of the cases that he is not involved in. Arizona federal court deals crushing blow to lawsuit aimed at protecting 2020 initiative measures. Here's his article. Today, the Arizona Federal District Court issued an order, and this is from earlier in the week, I think it's Monday. Today, the Arizona Federal District Court issued an order dismissing First and Fourteenth Amendment challenges to Arizona's initiative petition strikeout law and declined to enter a preliminary injunction in joining the law. Thus, the strikeout law will likely remain in play for the 2020 election cycle and continue to act as the principal headache for any initiative groups seeking to qualify measures for the Arizona ballot in November. Arizona law requires now re- requires a court to invalidate initiative petition signatures collected by a registered circulator who was subpoenaed for trial for a challenged ballot measure but then fails to appear or produce the requested documents in court. The Arizona Supreme Court already upheld the constitutionality of the strikeout law last year. Nonetheless, next-gen climate action, Tom Steyer's advocacy group, and various straw plaintiffs challenged the strikeout law in federal court earlier this year. The strikeout law is probably the most effective tool used by litigants in recent years to challenge controversial initiative measures. In effect, the strikeout law requires initiative backers to have a post-filing game plan in place to ensure their professional petition circulators are available to return for trial in August of the general election year. By implication, this places a premium on either hiring local circulators who are more readily available to testify or spending exorbitant sums to transport and coordinate the logistics for their more itinerant circulators to return to Arizona. But Judge Bolton's order throws cold water on any hopes that these defining characteristics of election litigation will wither away for the 2020 election cycle. And Spencer puts an update on that. Uh, The next day, on Tuesday, the plaintiffs appeal Judge Bolton's decision to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And we'll see if that gets fast-tracked for a decision in time for the initiative, uh, the initiatives that are being gathered or being attempted to get put on ballot for this November. It's going to need to be hastily decided, brought before the Ninth Circuit and decided. So we'll see what happens with that. And uh, I should note that I've been involved with uh, representing some of those uh, uh, initiative measures and petition circulators uh, and dealing with that strikeout law. That article was from Eric Spencer on ArizonaElectionLaw.com. I believe it's .com, not .org. Here's a column uh, from the Arizona Republic on that case. And it's from Lori Roberts, Arizona Republic columnist. 
It's headlined, and just in time for 2020, Arizona voters get another kick in the teeth. Here's her opinion column. Arizona voters got a kick in the teeth on Monday. A federal judge let stand a legislative scheme aimed at weakening your constitutional rights. No longer can you assume when you sign a petition to put a proposal on the ballot that your signature will actually count. While Arizonans have a constitutional right to make laws via voter initiative, the Republicans who control state government have spent the last five years doing everything they can to weaken that right. You're right the one that was given to you 107 years ago by the state's founders. One of those schemes, dubbed the strikeout law, automatically invalidates the signatures of all voters who sign a petition if a paid or out-of-state petition circulator does not show up when subpoenaed to court. That one was used last year by a trio of dark money groups desperate to keep an initiative to require dark money disclosure off the ballot because, of course, it would have passed. The Koch-funded Americans for Prosperity and Concerned Veterans for America, together with the Arizona Free Enterprise Club, the front group for APS's 2014 dark money campaign to elect its own regulators, sued to toss the Outlaw Dirty Money initiative off of the ballot. The dark money groups subpoenaed more than a dozen mostly out-of-state petition circulators who collected signatures for Outlaw Dirty Money, people they contended were not qualified. None of those circulators showed up in court. Thus, the dark money groups contended the judge had no choice but to invalidate every signature they collected. No need for a judge to actually look at the evidence to determine whether each petition circulator was qualified. No need for a judge to consider whether the people who signed those petitions were voters who had a right to have their voice heard. No need, apparently, for a judge at all. A monkey would do. The petitions, containing 8,824 voter signatures, were tossed out sight unseen, and the Supreme Court found this disgraceful scheme legal. The initiative died, and dark money continues to flow. No doubt the dark money crowd will try the same thing next year as outlaw dirty money tries again to get on the ballot. The group is relying, as it did in 2018, mostly on volunteers, but getting 356,467 valid voter signatures is no easy task. It just was made harder. And U.S. Judge, District Court Judge Susan Bolton let that strikeout law stand. A coalition of liberal advocacy groups, including one that is running a 2020 initiative to outlaw predatory lenders and their 204 percent interest rates, filed a federal lawsuit hoping to overturn it. The groups contend the strikeout law throws up unconstitutional obstacles designed to make it harder for voters to exercise their right to make laws at a ballot box. Supporters of the law, meanwhile, say it is needed to combat fraud. On Monday, U.S. District Court Judge Susan Bolton let the law stand, a decision likely to remain in place now for the duration of the 2020 election season. And Lori Roberts wrote this uh, before it was noted in the news that, uh, that it had been appealed to the Ninth Circuit. Better, apparently, to punish the voters who legitimately signed a petition thinking their voice mattered than to punish the circulator who was a no-show in court. In her ruling... Bolton acknowledged the provision could make it more difficult to make laws via voter initiative, but found there was not sufficient evidence thus far of irreparable harm or any chilling effect. Because the Arizona Supreme Court has already held that the strikeout law does not hinder or restrict the initiative process, she wrote, this court concludes that the strikeout law does not severely burden plaintiffs' fundamental right to vote. It is worth noting that the law also doesn't severely burden our leaders, 
or burn them at all. In fact, the strikeout law does not apply to the nominating petitions that elected officials must submit in order to qualify for the ballot. It applies only to those seeking to exercise their constitutional right to bypass them. Funny how that works. And that's the end of Lori Roberts' column, and it was headlined in just in time for 2020, Arizona voters get another kick in the teeth. And we should note uh, there at the end of her column about the nominating petitions for elected officials. And I can add that elected officials have used paid petition circulators, including paid petition circulators from out of state, to collect their signatures to get on the ballot. Okay, well, another election law-related case was in the news this week, and this is also reported by Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services. This was reported on Friday. Libertarian Party tells the Supreme Court state law keeps its candidates off the ballot. Here's the article. The Arizona Libertarian Party is making a last-ditch effort to quash a state statute that it says was designed to keep its candidates off the ballot. In filings with the U.S. Supreme Court, attorney Oliver Hall from the Center for Competitive Democracy said the law pushed through the Republican-controlled legislature in 2015 sharply increased, sometimes by a factor of 30, the number of signatures needed for libertarian candidates to qualify for the ballot. That was not by accident. In fact, the record shows that J.D. Mesnard, then a GOP representative from Chandler and now a state senator, told colleagues that Republicans would have been elected to two congressional seats had it not been for what he said were libertarian candidates in the same race, siphoning votes that otherwise would have gone to the GOP contenders. I can't believe we wouldn't see the benefit of this, Mesnard said during a floor speech. Hall told the justices the law had its desired effect. Only one libertarian qualified for the ballot in 2016 and none at all in 2018. Arizona has relegated the Arizona Libertarian Party to a state of electoral purgatory, Hall wrote. The party is ballot qualified under Arizona law, but it cannot place its candidates on the ballot. All that, he said, is unconstitutional. Hall acknowledged that the U.S. Constitution gives states the power to regulate the times, places, and manner of holding elections, but he said that was not as a source of power to dictate electoral outcomes, to favor or disfavor a class of candidates, or to evade important constitutional restraints. So far, Hall's arguments have failed to sway federal judges. They concluded the wording of that 2015 law, strictly speaking, treats all parties equally in how they get their candidates qualified for the ballot. But it is the way the system actually works that is behind the litigation. Prior to 2015, candidates for recognized minor parties could get on the ballot simply by submitting petitions with the signatures of half of 1% of those registered with the party. In 2018, for the Libertarians, a statewide candidate would have had to collect around 160 valid signatures. That year, the Republicans who control the legislature lowered the requirement for all parties to one quarter of 1% from one half of 1%, but they engineered it so the figure was based not on party registration, but on all who could sign a candidate's petition. That ended. That added political independence, or party not disclosed, to the base, who actually outnumbered Democrats and run a close second to Republicans. So in 2018, the minimum signature requirement for a libertarian running statewide was actually 3,153, instead of that 160, about 10% of all those actually registered as libertarians. 
Meanwhile, the numbers for Republicans and Democratic nominations remained close to what it always had been. 6,223 signatures for GOP candidates, 5,801 for Democrats, both a small fraction of each party's voter registration. Hall said the state cannot force libertarians to depend on political independence to get their names on the ballot, particularly as they cannot actually vote in the primary. The bottom line, he said, is that a libertarian contender seeking support from like-minded people who are affiliated with the party have a much higher burden. Take that 2018 primary. There were about 1.26 million registered Republicans, so a GOP contender seeking signatures of just Republicans needed just signatures from 0.4% of party faithful. But for a Libertarian, getting 3,153 signatures from only Libertarians amounted to more than 10% of the total registered Libertarians. Judge Margaret McCown of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals acknowledged that for some offices, the party's desire to have petitions signed only by party faithfuls could amount to 30 percent of registered libertarians. But in writing a ruling earlier this year upholding the law, she said that libertarians, just like Republicans and Democrats, are free to seek the signatures of just 1 percent of those eligible to sign petitions. That means not just libertarians, but more than a million Arizonans who are registered to vote as independents. McCown said that it is the decision of the Libertarian Party and not the legislature to allow only party members to participate in the primary. Put simply, McCown said the problem is of the party's own making because of its exclusionary policy. And she said that voiding the 2015 law and going back to the prior law would incentivize parties to have fewer registered members and therefore artificially reduce their signature requirements. Hall, however, said forcing libertarian contenders to rely on the support of independents is unconstitutional, saying it amounts to a form of compelled association. Arizona has no legitimate interest in requiring that libertarian candidates demonstrate support from independent voters who are not eligible to vote for them, and who have no reason or incentive to support the candidate's effort to obtain the party's nomination. That was a quote from his filing. He also told the justices that what the state wants is unusual. Arizona stands alone in requiring that candidates demonstrate support from voters who are not eligible to vote for them, Hall wrote. And that's the end of the article by Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services from Friday, December 20th. Libertarian Party tells Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, that state law keeps its candidates off ballot. Well, we have just a couple of minutes left. Let's see if we have time to read any uh, any other articles. Well, there's this short article in L.A. Times Explainer on history, changing makeup of the ninth no longer nutty circuit. The Los Angeles Times has an interesting explainer on how the ninth circuit of the U.S. Court of Appeals got its liberal reputation and the changing makeup of the court. President Carter appointed 15 judges. President Trump now has confirmed eight. Here is a key section from that article. That was a long time ago. Is the nutty ninth reputation still true? And the answer that the LA Times gives is not for a while. The court still leans liberal, but without the fervency of its past. Fewer posits that this is at least in part due to a general trend of the judges appointed by Democratic presidents shifting more toward the center over the last few administrations, while Republicans have continued to appoint judges who are consistently, if not increasingly, conservative. And the Carter-era liberal lions are no longer on the court. But even with all that said, the makeup of the court still has changed drastically during the Trump years. 
As recently as April of 2017, judges appointed by Democratic presidents outnumbered Republican appointees on the Ninth Circuit by about two to one. The court is now edging toward a more even split with a ratio of 16 Democrat-appointed active judges to 13 Republican-appointed ones. And it is worth noting that Arizona's Republican politicians have become much quieter about splitting up the Ninth Circuit. Senator McSally is a co-sponsor of one bill in the Senate, and Representative Andy Biggs is the sponsor in the House, and Representative Gosar is a co-sponsor. However, none of the bills in the current Congress, either House or Senate, have received a hearing. And we also want to note that one of those eight new judges that President Trump has appointed to the Ninth Circuit and that the Senate has approved of is Arizona's Honorable Bridget Beatty. And with that, we reach the end of this installment of AZ Law. Remember to listen or download our program wherever you find your podcasts, such as iTunes Podcasts, Google Play Music and Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, wherever you find them. Don't forget to subscribe as well. And since our primary purpose here is to support the important services provided by Sun Sounds of Arizona, don't forget to go to our website, arizonaslaw.org, and help them out as well. You'll find the links on our website. We have several plans to grow and improve this program in the coming year, but hey, your comments and suggestions to make this program better are always welcomed also, especially since this is a new program on Sun Sounds of Arizona and on our website. Email me at paul.wyke.azlaw at gmail.com and don't forget Wyke is spelled W-E-I-C-H. So I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Wyke, thanking you for listening to AZ Law.